Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Russell. Hi, everyone. It's Ben. Today on the show, we have Rollin Mott. Rollin is an avid climber, boater, and backpacker. He has spent the last six years instructing wilderness courses in the areas of backpacking, climbing, and Class 1 to 5 whitewater. He's guided through the American West and Central America. He currently works as a Subaru Leave No Trace traveling trainer with the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics. He travels year-round, providing free educational workshops and trainings all over the United States. He camps over 200 nights a year traveling and living out of a Subaru. Rollin, other than teaching thousands of people a year and saving the world, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, sure, absolutely. I'm 26 years old. Uh, about to turn 27. I'm a pretty simple guy. I love being outside. Uh, I love being with people. Uh, and I especially love the outdoors. I'm extremely passionate about doing anything in the outdoors, whether I'm talking about it, whether I'm engaging in it, whether I'm sitting around a campfire, uh, just swapping stories. Uh, I think that the outdoors is really uh, the thread uh, in the fabric of my life and the passion. Now, Ron, I'm really looking forward to talking to you today because what you do is something that I can really relate to. Sometimes on the show, we talk to polar explorers or Everest climbers, and I'm pretty sure I'm never going to do any of those things. So <laughs> you're an expert in something that's attainable for me. So thank you for coming on today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having an, uh, an average Joe on the show. <laughs> so you've done all these different things, and you whitewater kayak, and you're hiking a lot, doing a lot of backpacking. You basically live in a tent. How did this all get started? Uh, well, I guess, uh, I guess my passion for the outdoors really started with my first backpacking trip that my older brother, Zach, took me on. I was a scrawny 14-year-old uh, from Golden, Colorado. Um, I, we went out to uh, Grand Gulch, which is in southeast Utah on the Cedar Mesa, uh, and we spent a week backpacking uh, inside of these 1,000-foot uh, uh, canyons. Uh, throughout the uh, southwest and and you know i i had a pair of boots i had my older brother's boots on which were about a a size and a half too big i i had a a friend of the family's backpack which i could have fit three of myself inside (laughs) of and um, i remember just hiking on that trip um, and just feeling like each foot was sinking into the ground uh, with the weight on my pack uh, and being miserable but (laughs) at the same time uh, just being so overwhelmed with this sense of freedom, uh, with this sense of this seems like I'm finally doing something I'm supposed to do. Mm. Um, and just looking up at some of those, uh, you know, ancestral um, Puebloan cliff dwellings that are, uh, you know, 600 feet up uh, in, on these canyon walls and, and just really allowing the mystery and the power of the outdoors just to soak into that 14-year-old brain and say, <laughs> there is a lot of life to be lived outside. And so I guess it all started right there for me. Uh, yeah, every time I go on a hiking trip or backpacking, I basically grew up doing that. 
it's just miserable for me a lot of the time in the middle of it because you're just you're pushing yourself. You're not sure if you can quite do it, but then you get to the top. You're in such a good mood and it, it feels really great. That's really awesome. So Ben and I are really intrigued with your whole camping experience. And now that you're doing this job, you camp almost 200 days a year. I don't know anyone that does that, especially for a job. What's your favorite camp story that you've had? A lot of people have their food stolen or realize that uh, their tent's blown away or they don't know how to start a fire. What, what's yours? Oh, that is a tough question to, to answer. Um, I'm going to go for a more recent one. So I'll go for a, a story that I have um, with Leave No Trace camping. Uh, but we were, uh, when we first started the job, we've been on the road for about two years now with Leave No Trace uh, as Subaru Leave No Trace traveling trainers. And so one of the first places we went in the first couple months of our job, uh, we went to Joshua Tree. Uh, which had been uh, a dream of mine as an avid climber to get to Joshua Tree. Um, and we were extremely excited to be there. Uh, and we had just got some, some new gear uh, from, from some of our partners, and uh, we were excited to use it. So we had this big, this big MSR expedition-sized tent, um, and it's, it's kind of shaped like a covered wagon. Uh, but it can fit six people in it. You can stand up within it. Um, it's a big, big, solid tent. And, uh, and so we set it up in Indian Cove, which is a campground just outside of Joshua Tree National Park. Uh, and it was our second night uh, in this tent. And we were so excited to have this tent. Um, and so we set it up and we've, you know, we've got our big North Face duffels in there full of clothes. You know, we've got our bed. Um, we've got a goal, a goal Zero battery cell, some pretty heavy stuff in there. And, uh, and I've, I've got six stakeout points. Um, that I've staked out, and I feel pretty good about it. You know, the weather's been calm. Uh, the uh, the forecast, you know, it's Joshua Tree's, you know, always 50 degrees at night and, <laughs> you know, 75 degrees during the day mm-hmm. in the winter, and so it looked good. Um, and so we went into town for a work day. We sat at a coffee shop, and, uh, you know, this job ha- has, a lot of, has a lot of computer time associated with it. So we were at a coffee shop all day, and, and we got to camp, <laughs> And uh, the sun had, was just setting, uh, and I pulled up and I looked over at our camp, and all I saw was uh, was a gold zero battery cell just <laughs> sitting in the in the oh, dirt. Yeah. Uh, and, and I said, I said to my partner uh, Danny, I said, Danny, our tent's gone. She said, What do you mean? I said, What do you mean? What do we, What do I mean? Our tent's gone. And so Danny goes into this automatic freakout. So she gets out of the car and just runs straight to the, the people that have been camping next to us, you know, arms flailing. Have you seen, you know, we're thinking somebody stole this humongous tent. And, uh, and so as she, as she goes uh, running off with her arms flailing to uh, check if, if our neighbors saw anything, uh, I get out and, and I walk over, to the, walk over to our site and I see my uh, sleeping bag. I see my sleeping bag about 50 feet away. And so I follow it, and then I see, uh, I see a sleeping pad, you know, another 100 feet. So I follow it. And so I start following this, this breadcrumb trail of all of our gear. Uh, and so finally I'm like, this thing blew away. And so I'm running with my headlamp in the middle of, of you know, the Mojave Desert. It, you know, it's dark, my headlamp, I'm, you know, freaking out. And, uh, and I got about 400 yards, and I said, this is, it's gone. That sucker. <laughs> so you lost your tent? I don't know where it is. <laughs> Somebody so, hit the jackpot then. That's a nice tent, right? 
Well, I turned around and on the way back, you know, I was just kind of scanning the landscape and out of the corner of my eye, you know, I see kind of a flicker of light. And so I, so I, you know, I start running over there and this tent had the, the footprint of the tent had wrapped itself around a Joshua tree. Um, oh, wow. And the wind was, uh, I, I was unaware. Um, you only, you only go and have one experience in Joshua tree before you know, uh, that winds there, uh, they come and go as they please, and they come with force to be reckoned with. Hmm. I mean, it will be as as calm as a Hindu cow, and then all of a sudden you'll get a 60-mile-an-hour microburst <laughs> that just tears your camp apart. Uh, and so this is how we figured it out. But I found the tent, and it's getting just thrashed, this humongous tent getting thrashed in the wind. And so I take it down, and uh, Danny comes over. And amazingly, we didn't lose a single piece of gear. Wow. I collected every... I mean, every wind-strewn sock and base layer and uh, every single thing. So the next day, I went into the gear store, uh, and I bought like 200 feet uh, of guy cord. Uh, mm. And I tied guy cord on every point. And now when we stake out that tent, there is uh, 22 stakeout points. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you do that every time? Uh, yes, I do. Wow. I don't care where I am. People must think you're crazy. That's funny. <laughs> So anytime we set that up, which is not, which is not as often, uh, if we're going to be somewhere for a week or so, we'll set up the big tent. But most times we just sleep in a smaller tent. Oh, okay. Uh, but when we do, it, it is a fortress. So let's talk more about these trips, uh, these Leave No Trace trips. And tell us first more about what Leave No Trace is. Yeah, absolutely. So Leave No Trace is an educational nonprofit, and it's based out of Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and... The sole purpose of the nonprofit is to educate. Uh, so we focus on educating people with skills or outdoor ethics uh, to minimize the, minimize the impact that they have in our outdoor places. Um, so the idea is that we have these public lands um, to enjoy, to hike and to paddle and to climb and, and to fish. And they belong to us. We own them. We pay for them with our tax dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to foster this sense of communal respect or communal ownership for the land and say that, hey, it, it's not up to the park service. It's not up to park staff or President Obama. It's to protect these places. Uh, but it's up to us. It's up to each of us on an individual basis to do simple things uh, to minimize our impact, to protect and preserve the integrity of these places so that we can have them uh, for generations to enjoy. So what kind of people are you training on these trips? Are they kids or are they like Russell and me? Yeah, we train absolutely everybody under the sun. Um, but what happens is we, uh, we have a few partners that support us. Um, Subaru is, is a really big one. So they provide us a car and a living stipend. And, and so we live out, out of a Subaru and we travel. And we have a scheduling manager that puts together events all over the United States. And we teach everyone from kindergarten through university level, we teach guide and outfitter services, we teach professional athletes, we teach park rangers, uh, we teach uh, general public, uh, really anybody that enjoys going outside, which is everybody. Um, <laughs> we'll talk to them about uh, you know how they can make simple decisions to, uh, to keep these places in good shape and open and available. Yeah, so you're probably one of the one of the few, I don't know that many people that are going out and reaching this many people in this kind of organization. Do you also feel some sort of responsibility to 
educate the next generation to get them outside more and not just kind of being a responsible person in the outdoors? Yeah, absolutely. We focus a lot of our education on youth um, and just planting those seeds of, of stewardship uh, because they're going to be the ones that are in charge. And really the fate of our lands uh, are in their hands. And so we focus a lot of our education on youth and you know, we really focus on educating, connecting, and protecting. So educating people with the Leave No Trace, the seven principles of Leave No Trace, uh, and then connecting people with their outdoor places. And I think that connection with youth is especially important because until you have a connection or until you have an experience that connects you with an outdoor place, you really have no reason or foundation to want to protect it or mm. to really care about it whatsoever. So that connection piece is, is vital to mm-hmm. what we do. What we're really trying to teach is, is an ethic, is this, this sense of respect for, um, especially respect and pride for our own backyard. Uh, because the really beautiful thing about the United States and what we really get to experience traveling all over is you don't have to go to Yellowstone. You don't have to go to Yosemite to experience the beauty that this country has to offer. Uh, the majority of people can walk out in their backyard and it's right there. Um, so getting people in, you know, connected with the places that they have um, and fostering a sense of, of pride and respect for those places is absolutely necessary. Because, uh, you know, a fun statistic for you, we, we kind of separate between front country, which is areas that you can get to with your car and spend the day. So that'd be your local park, um, a state park. Uh, and then backcountry is obviously places that are more remote that you've got to work to get into. Uh, and 85% of, of recreation in the United States happens in front country areas. Mm, wow. So those users uh, absolutely need that education because that's where the majority of recreation in the United States and the majority of impact that we have uh, is happening is in those front country areas. Yeah, so let's talk about the really tangible items. Let's say Russell and I are going out on a camping trip. What are three things? Like if you, if you had to narrow it down to three pieces of advice for us when we go out to our campsite, what do, what do we need to do? Uh, sure, that's, that's tough to narrow it down to three <laughs> as, there's, as there's seven principles and they're all very <laughs> necessary. But uh, <laughs> I would say if I was, if I was forced to, to say three, I would say uh, the first thing is planning ahead and preparing. Um, so before you go, uh, making sure that you have a plan, uh, that you know where you're going, uh, that you, uh, if you're hiking, you have a map, you have an idea of the area you're going, making sure that you bring, uh, enough food, uh, enough water, warm clothes. I mean, the pretty basic kind of the 10 essentials. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second would be, uh, to dispose of waste properly. So doing simple things like uh, if you're going to be camping, making sure that you keep a nice, clean, tidy campsite. So keeping your food stored safe so that animals aren't getting into it, uh, making sure that you minimize the amount of trash that you're going to have to deal with. So simple things like repackaging your 55 uh, cliff bars. You can take them out of their wrapping when you're at home, put them in a Ziploc, and that's 55 less pieces of trash you have mm. to deal with out there. Um, and then also disposing of your human waste properly. So understanding if you're somewhere where there's not a bathroom, understanding how to poop in the woods because this is this is something that yeah. everybody does, and it's uh, it's not something that can be ignored. It's something that uh, people need to be educated on on how on how and what they can do. Uh, and then a third, I would say, is uh, minimizing campfire impact. 
So making sure that if you do have a campfire, you make sure that uh, you understand the regulations. So make sure campfires are allowed. You're making sure that you're having it in an established area, you know, a, a fire ring or a fire pit that's already there. Uh, and then making sure uh, that we're collecting dead and down wood on the ground or buying local firewood to burn and having a nice small fire and, you know, keeping it safe. So you teach people how to enjoy their outdoors responsibly. What are some horror stories of people who have enjoyed the outdoors <laughs> irresponsibly? <laughs> oh, the horror stories are endless. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I do have a, a driving belief in force in me that those stories are, are becoming less and less as more people are, are educated. <laughs> um, but a horror story, I can, I can tell uh, – one of my horror stories that I tell that is more on the extreme end uh, because there are simple things like getting to a campsite and having half-burned food scraps and trash in the mm-hmm. fire pit. Uh, I want to hear know, the extreme stuff. Toilet <laughs> paper. Okay, you, we we want to hear the extreme one. Okay, uh, so this is, this is a good one. Um, so I was on a mountaineering trip uh, in, the San Juan, in the San Juan National Forest, which is in southwest Colorado. Uh, very beautiful mountains called the Swiss Alps of America. Mm. And, uh, I mean, very picturesque, sharp, granite, jutting peaks that are, you know, 14,000 feet tall. And uh, I was in a range called the Grenadier Range, and I was climbing a peak, uh, a technical peak with uh, a group of friends, and I was, um, I was leading the climb, so I was at the, at the forefront uh, I was en route, and I was about 100 feet uh, beneath the summit. So I was about 13 hours into uh, the trip, uh, into the summit bid. So we'd woke up at about uh, 2 in the morning that morning, uh, and we'd been at it for about 10 or 11 hours. I was about 100 feet from the summit, uh, and I reached up and put my hand on this nice big flat hold, um, and my hand came down directly into a pile of human poop. Oh, wow. And so there was this old technique, and pardon, pardon my French, but it was called the shit put. The and shit. so for in alpine environments, how to dispose of waste, uh, there was an old technique, which, which we, don't, uh, we don't condone anymore. But you would, you would poop on a, on a flat rock, and you would, this is verbatim, spread it to a thin veneer, <laughs> which if anybody has ever spread, uh, which I have, poop to a thin veneer, it's a very intimate and disgusting process. Mm. But um, and then you would you know you would shot put it or shit put it off of um, off of the mountain, um, and the idea was that if it was spread thin enough, the UV rays would kill all the pathogens. Hmm. Um, it would dry, and then you know a rain or a uh, or a wind it would flake off, um, and it does work. But uh, people just use it as mountaineers just use it as an excuse to poop on a rock, <laughs> which this individual uh, did. Uh, in the middle of the route, but they didn't. They didn't spread it to a thin veneer. It sounds like no, they didn't. It, it was um, I spread it pretty well when I uh, <laughs> when I when I when I slapped it down. Uh, but you know that experience. You know I had to um, I had to summit with one hand, um, and then I I had to you know repel um, for six hours. I had to repel and down climb with one hand. Oh, wow. um, and for about the next week, um, because I was out there for a month and a half, and this was about on day 10. Um, so I'm, I'm 10 days into the backcountry. There, there's no, I mean, there's no it's hospital no around sanitizer. the corner. Um, <laughs> there was hand sanitizer, but oh, it was okay. at 
there it was at camp okay. um and so i was terrified for about the next week of, of getting sick from mm. having someone's mm. human feces on on my hand for that amount of time the the ship pudding you said that people don't do that anymore what's the preferred practice now uh, so the preferred practice in, a, in an alpine environment uh, where there's no nowhere to dig a cat hole or uh, no uh, organic soil to dig and mm. to deposit uh, your poop, uh, the best thing is to pack it out. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, we have a mantra that says pack it in, pack it out. Right. Um, and that's for, you know, all of our making sure that when we go into places, anything that we bring with us, we're taking back out with us to leave places as good or better than we found them. Mm. Um, and some places uh, it's, you know, it's required to pack out your waste. Um, other places it's just smart to pack out your waste. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of easy alternatives uh, for packing out waste. Isn't feces good fertilizer, though? Um, so the earth is really good at recycling itself. Uh, but the thing is, uh, with our feces, uh, especially human and then, uh, domestic animals like dogs, uh, is that the things that we're putting into our body are not very natural. So a lot of processed foods, Mm. a lot of refined sugars. Um, and so what happens with, with what we're putting into our body is that what comes out of it is very altered as well. Mm. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, disease and pathogens that are present in human feces that are just not present in animal feces. And, Interesting. I mean, that's things like uh, cryptosporidium or giardia, things like hepatitis. Um, these mm. can all be found in human feces. And so uh, human feces can be a big vector for the transmissal of disease, especially if animals are able to get into it or, in my case, if, you know, I personally uh, get into it. <laughs> Very interesting. But you didn't get sick at all? You, you survived? I did not. I kept my, my hand at an arm's length, luckily. I had an <laughs> arm to separate it from me. Um, but it was, it was a tedious task, eight hours back to base camp, uh, being it, you know, having to do technical rappelling and down climbing with with one hand. But no, I did not get sick and I'm I'm very thankful for that. Hmm. So there's kind of an extreme story of an impact, <laughs> but the but the impacts that we see most mm-hmm. are things like uh you know trash at campsites, half-burned food in in campfires, uh, you know, people carving on trees or rocks. These are things that we get to see every day. Everybody gets to to uh to feel those impacts or just experience those impacts. Great. I wanted to just touch upon your life a little bit more just because it's you have such an unusual job and you probably realize that. But for most of our listeners, I don't think they know what it's like to be driving every day, waking up in new locations. How do you handle that mentally? <laughs> um, you know, the, it's very rare that I wake up and uh, which I do sometimes though, wake up and say, where am I? You know, like what state, <laughs> what time zone? Uh, but for the most part, you know, it's not that much different than any other life. You get in a routine, uh, and my routine just looks a little bit different. Instead mm. of going to work, driving home, making dinner, going to bed, uh, going and climbing some mountains on the weekend, uh, my routine is I wake up in a tent, I break down camp, I get in a car, uh, I drive. You know, I drive to wherever we're teaching next. I set up camp. Um, I go to work. I teach. <laughs> I come home, which just happens to be outside. I make dinner, I go to bed, which happens to be in a tent, uh, and then I do it again. So it's not much different than anybody's life. You have your routine. My routine just looks slightly different than uh, normal. So part of that routine for most people is showering. That doesn't seem like a very easy thing. 
How do you handle that? <laughs> uh, that's usually the first question we get when we teach kids uh, is, is how do you, where do you shower? Um, or where do you get your food? Well, we get our food at grocery stores and we usually shower in showers. But um, yeah, we did, last year we documented in 2013, we took 74 showers. Ooh, wow. Which is pretty good. I mean, that's, that's more than one more than a week. Ben. Yeah, I wouldn't say that's very good. <laughs> I shower. Yeah, so, I shower once a day. <laughs> um, so we usually get a, in a shower once a week, and it depends. You know, sometimes we have we have friends that we know uh, we can catch a shower with. Mm. Sometimes it's a YMCA. You know, in a town that we're in. Sometimes it's a state park. Sometimes it's an event host. Um, you know, I actually started a photo documentary. I've been taking a photo of every shower head that I use. And oh, I want to nice. put together a, That's great. a collage of, you know, these hundreds of different shower heads. Most, most of them pretty shabby. But. <laughs> you probably learn to cherish the shower if you only get to do it once a week. Uh, no? You know, I've never been necessarily prone to showering. But there, there is sometimes that there, there's nothing, you know, just like a, a fresh haircut or you know, getting out of the shower, just, it just gives you a new lease on life. And so every, every once in a while I do shower and I feel, you know, I feel like a million bucks. So you're obviously an expert in the outdoors and you talked before about a lot of the gear that you use, the tents, the ways that you can cook food, that sort of thing. What is one piece of gear that you would recommend for our listeners? (laughs) Um, well, when I read that question, the first thing that hopped into my mind is underwear. Oh, and wow. one of my favorite quotes is from Ernest Hemingway, and he says, "Wearing underwear is as formal as I ever hope to get." <laughs> and so, when I think about that, I think you, you know, if you're going to be caught dead in your underwear, you better have a nice pair of underwear on. Um, but then I thought, all right, well, let's let's think about something a little more useful. So, a uh, piece of gear, you know, sleeping outside 200 last last year, um, it was about 240 nights we slept outside, um, and so when you sleep on the ground every night. Um, your sleeping pad is uh, is big time. Uh, so the piece of gear that I chose uh, was my sleeping pad, which is a big Agnes insulated Q-Core hmm. sleeping pad. It's insulated, so in the winter, it's extremely warm. Uh, I mean, it blows up to be four inches tall. Wow. Uh, it weighs just about a pound. Hmm. Uh, it packs down really small for backpacking, but when we're when we're in more front country areas, we have a Big Agnes uh, sleeping giant memory foam topper that goes on it. And this thing is as comfortable or more comfortable than any bed I've ever slept in. Wow. That's definitely something I'd like to check out. Yeah. Big Agnes insulated Q-Core. Good answer. So you are sleeping on sleeping pads and you have a tent, but I have also seen people on TV like Bear Grylls and Survivor Man who are sleeping in trees and everything. Have you ever watched those shows? And what do you think of those guys? Um, I have watched those shows. You know, uh, uh, there's a million ways to skin a cat. There's so many ways to enjoy the outdoors. Um, and uh, I mean, I've had some some unplanned bivouacs um, on the sides of mountains or on rocks that have been less than enjoyable. But I don't. I don't think I'd willingly suffer in that way. Mm-hmm. I think if I if I were to suffer with a bigger goal in mind then I, I'm okay with that. But I think just suffering for suffering's sake seems a bit sadistic to me. Most of the people that come on the show call themselves professional sufferers. So it's kind <laughs> There of was one guy who did call himself a professional sufferer. Yeah. Well, and I mean, being in the outdoors, yeah, it, uh, that's what you do. You suffer. But you suffer f- for 
Uh, I mean, for a reason. You're not suffering for the sake of suffering. You're suffering for something bigger, something bigger than yourself. You're suffering for a goal, for a vision, for a dream, for Mm -hmm. an accomplishment. Um, And so that suffering always leads to to learning about yourself, um, about how strong you are mentally or physically. I mean, with that suffering comes a lesson. And that's the purpose of the suffering is the lesson, not the suffering in and of itself. And team building too. uh, Adversity is a big team builder, it seems like. Where if you're trapped, you're trapped in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of people. I feel like that would be a a better team builder than, I don't know, a corporate retreat or something along those lines. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think that that you create a bond uh, with people in the outdoors, a, a type of bond that you just cannot create or foster in any other environment. That's what we need to do with our interns, Russell. We want to get some interns on the show. Listen, anybody out there, if you'd like to come be an intern for Mountain Meister, we will collect all of you, drop you off in the middle of nowhere in the woods with absolutely nothing. We'll be there too. <laughs> well, you'll thank us later because you're going to be a great team. Yeah, absolutely. You'll, ha- you'll have a stellar crew. I <laughs> uh, just have one more question to, to kind of inspire our listeners to take action, something to help you. What is the biggest challenge you've faced as a traveling educator with Leave No Trace? I think the biggest challenge is being able to reach everybody. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's just so many people, and I think that's the toughest part. And so we really uh, rely on people being passionate stewards of the Mm -hmm. outdoor places that they enjoy. And, you know, as a Subaru Leave No Trace traveling trainer, I can only you know, directly interact with so many people. But the real power comes from those people going out and being passionate uh, in their lives and about protecting these places and having them available uh, and sharing. So our volunteers and then just, I mean, everyday people that love getting outside. um, That's where the real power of Leave No Trace comes. Do you have a resource that the listeners could check out if they couldn't get involved with Leave No Trace at one of your seminars or uh, events? Yeah, absolutely. The website is LNT, so Leave No Trace, lnt.org. It's a great resource. It's got a ton of information, and it also has a lot of information of what's going on in the community. Uh, On the website, you can click on, there's a map of the United States in the bottom left. You can click and go to your state and see what's going on Hmm. Um, because there's always workshops. There's always volunteers putting on workshops. Um, And if you, you know, if you are interested in in having a a traveling team come and visit you, um, all of our events are requested. Very cool. Yeah, thank you. And I know you mentioned this as a challenge for reaching people, but Leave No Trace has been very successful so far. I was looking at your numbers on your annual report supported by 500 businesses and nonprofits. You've reached 310,000 people last year through your education system wow. mm-hmm. um, and 1.2 million in revenue through partnerships, sponsors, et cetera, which you then obviously distribute through all these classes. So doing great things, uh, lnt.org for our listeners. You can also check out Rollins' Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Dot com, which will have all the information that we've talked about today. So thank you so much, Roland. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, one more thing is, uh, is if you are passionate, you know, we're a member-driven nonprofit, uh, and about 81 cents of every dollar that comes in goes straight into education. So we're able to give free education all of the United States uh, because of people that are passionate. Yeah, and if anyone's interested in joining, we'll put a link right on our website. 
And thank you so much for coming on the show, Rollin. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. Hey, Meister fans. Thanks for listening to Rollin's episode. It was very interesting. I learned a ton from him. Also, Ben and I have a ton of stuff left. We're doing the gear giveaway this whole week. We have gear like a Brunton radio, some scarves and hats from Hotmox, a ton of cool stuff. You can check it all out on our website. And to win all this cool stuff, all you need to do is share one of our episodes on Facebook and tag Mountain Meister so we can see that you did that, and you'll be entered to win some of this cool gear. Join us next episode when we have Casey Dean on the show. Russell, try to name all of Casey's injuries. Well, he's broken every bone in his body at least two or three times. I don't know. It's (laughs) it's just way too many. Thanks for tuning in.